What is up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Devin Rothstein. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest to me and hopefully to the rest of my listeners, someone who I have been following and reading for, I think, 25 years, which is pretty incredible. And I am talking about the international bestselling author, Jeffrey Deaver. Jeffrey Deaver, welcome into TMT Time. Evan, thank you. Uh, Really looking forward to a chat today. So I was just talking with Jeffrey offline here before we start going about how I actually got connected with him, which uh, was probably the most exciting moment for me of TMT time. And one of my guests for a podcast that is yet to be published with cybersecurity experts from Langley Cyber, one of the co-owners is a former CIA officer. That's the only thing I can say about him. Jerry Sussman and Jeffrey Deaver was just telling me that he is godfather to their kids and telling a great story about how he met them. Um, so Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You got a new novel coming out called the midnight law coming out on November 30th. Mm-hmm. It is a Lincoln rhyme novel, uh, for ardent fans of Mr. Deaver's novels, Lincoln rhyme kind of kicked off your sort of fame in the industry, but you've been writing for a long time before that. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. I think, um, the, the um, the bone collector, uh, which your listeners may know either as a book or the movie, the, the very uh, successful film starring uh, Angelina Jolie and uh, Denzel Washington, uh, Washington playing the uh, Lincoln Rhyme uh, uh, part. Uh, that could have been, I'm just kind of, there's 1997, 1998, I think. And I'd been writing full-time. Uh, I left practicing law when I was, I think, 39 or so. So I, I guess I had about, 10 books under my belt at that point, 10 or 12. But uh, just, you know, there's this confluence. Things just sort of come together. Uh, uh, you know, I've always felt that um, uh, writing is mostly uh, perspiration. There's some inspiration. But you just roll up your sleeves and you do the job. And I, uh, you know, I was a journeyman writer. Um, and then all of a sudden, something kind of came together with The Bone Collector. Um, the, the book was uh, popular as a book, but then Universal Pictures said, uh, uh, well, we're going uh, to make you an offer for the, uh, the movie. Uh, it'll star Denzel Washington, Angelina Jolie. Um, and of course, it's my option. I didn't have to sell it, but I, I think I debated probably three seconds, maybe four at the longest. And <laughs> Denzel said, Washington, you're like, uh, I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite actors. And you know, the thing about him is I, say, I use the word actor as is Angelina Jolie, they are stars, but they are actors as well. And by that, I mean uh, that they, they're very thoughtful in their performances and their, their stories. Angelina Jolie, of course, is, is a director in her own right. And I don't know if Denzel uh, has actually directed anything. I know he's produced films, but they bring that uh, sense of uh, art and uh, craft to the skill rather than being just a big shoot 'em up star and there's nothing wrong with that i like big thrillers explosive uh, thrillers uh, as much as anybody but you know they really brought something to the film and i have to say it has uh it has just taken off it's still 20 years old and it's still um you'll still see it on uh hbo uh i'm actually uh, i know we're pre-recording this i'm about to leave on a book tour for italy it could very well be on sky tv i was in uh china and watched it on a, a, a tv set in my hotel room and the ironic thing is that it was dubbed. Uh, so to hear uh, Denzel and Angelina and the other characters speaking in, in Chinese, that was funny in its own right. 
But then because the dialects are so different, uh, you know, the Shesuan versus the uh, Mandarin, there were subtitles in Chinese uh, so that everybody could enjoy it. But anyway, it, it, the book has just uh, uh, become much more popular thanks to the movie. So I have, uh, and this is going to date me. So I was in high school when The Bone Collector came out, the book, which I read before I saw the movie. Uh, and my wife and I have been together for 20 years now. And when I told her that Jeffrey Deaver was going to come on the podcast, she looked at me for a second and said, wait, the guy whose books you buy all the time? And I said, <laughs> yes, actually that. And she went around our house and she found, and this is just what we have in my house. So this is, you know, we've lived multiple places, 14 different Jeffrey Deaver books that I've, I've purchased. And I only buy books uh, in paper copy uh, because I, I like the feeling of the paper. I don't read on, on like Amazon Kindle or anything else. Uh, and the oldest one I found was from 2006, but I did find the James Bond novel that you wrote. And I think it was what, 2010 or 2011. And I think to this day, are you still the only author that's been chosen other than Ian Fleming to write a James Bond novel? No, there are, um, uh, there are a number of us. Um, I was the second American asked to write uh, a James Bond novel. And uh, that again was one of these five second uh, debating moments. Uh, I, my book, Garden of Beasts, which is, uh, which if you're familiar with it. Um, I have it. It's one of the ones I found. Uh, I think uh, some of your listeners may not know, it, but it's a, a, my only historical novel set in Berlin in 1936. And the story very simply is about a, uh, a hitman for the mob in New York, uh, kind of a good hitman. He only killed, like Dexter, he only kills other hit people. Um, but he's caught and given the option, Sing Sing and the electric chair, or uh, pretend you're a journalist and under the auspices of the 1936 Olympics, go over to Berlin and kill one of Hitler's aides. Because we knew even then, uh, well, we knew in, uh, in the early 30s, even before that, that Hitler was uh, planning on breaking the Treaty of Versailles and was going to uh, rearm and begin uh, taking small bits of the country, the Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia, and um, Alsace-Lorraine, those were his plans. And we wanted to stop, uh, stop that from happening. Of course, I created a fictional character, this uh, rearmament czar of Hitler's, because uh, historically that didn't happen, but I wanted there to be tension uh, between uh, Paul and uh, this character, uh, who would survive, and the story moved along quickly. Well, that's a very long uh, preface to my story, which is that uh, the book received an award in um, uh, the United Kingdom, the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award given by the Crime Writers Association. And in my remarks, I said, I wouldn't be here now if it were not for Ian Fleming, because I began reading Fleming when I was um, eight years old. Uh, I suspect you too were reading when you were eight years old. I, I was. I don't know if I was reading Ian Fleming when I was eight years old, but very shortly thereafter, because I am a very big James Bond aficionado. Huh. Well, the, and, uh, the uh, Ian Fleming estate heard my uh, comments and, um, uh, you know, my gratitude to him uh, for and for helping me as a writer. I, I studied his books uh, probably informally at the time. And then when I started to uh, write, I would go back to those as well as other authors and use them as, you know, models and, uh, you know, springboards for uh, where I was going with my stories. And they said, well, we they looked at my other um, books and said, well, he can he can write. Uh, and I guess I fooled him enough. So they said, uh, why don't you write uh, a book, uh, uh, a James Bond book for us? And uh, I, I did. And it, uh, it, it did 
it, it did not diminish the name of Bond. I, I will say there are two schools of thought. When I was asked to write the, the book, I said, oh, I, I will certainly do it. But uh, and I, it wasn't like I put conditions on the estate. I simply said, I, I can't do it any other way than this. One is that it's set in the present day because I wanted readers, younger readers, maybe not eight years old, but younger readers to come to know Bond, not in the movies, but the literary Bond. And, um, and the, writing a book uh, and reading a book creates a different relationship. As you know, from reading paper books, Seven, as you were just saying, uh, but reading a book gives us, a, 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 I think, a, a richer experience with the creative process. And I thought, you know, people have seen Bond on the on the screen, and they, they he quips a lot, and there are all kinds of gadgets and explosions, and the the villains are, uh, you know, outre, they're over the top. But I wanted to bring it back down to the the Bond I knew, and so they said, "That's fine, you can you can do that." And I said, the big sticking point was going to be that I had to write a Jeffrey Deaver novel, and by that I mean, uh, as you know, I have lots of twists and turns surprise ending after surprise ending after surprise ending and a lot of reversals internal reversals and everything all comes together you know intersecting subplots uh, because that's what i like to that's what i like to read now ian fleming wrote a very linear book there are no surprises actually he only wrote one book um and that was um Let's see, which one was that? Casino Royale, I guess, that had a had a good twist in it. I didn't see that coming. Everything else is good guy versus the bad guy. And it's on a, a path uh, that where we know it's gonna, how it's gonna end up. Uh, but we read it for the characters and we read it for the atmosphere. That's what makes them so wonderful. But I couldn't do that. I had to create this, you know, three subplots going on at once. Um, and it, um, um, it, it, it worked. I mean, they, they, I said, well, I'll write it. If you don't like it, reject it. I don't pay me for my time or anything like that. But they did. They like uh, they liked it, and it did pretty well around the world. So I want to get into a little bit about what you were talking about, inspiration for your writing, and where you started, and how how you became a writer. Because you're a lawyer, like I am, or you were a lawyer, and mm -hmm. a lot of lawyers or ex lawyers write novels, but they write legal thrillers. Uh, like John Grisham, most of his novels are legal thrillers. Um, sure. Why did you go from being a lawyer and start writing sort of more crime novels or crime thrillers? Sure. I, and if, if I can uh, make a joke, I don't know what area of practice you have, but I get the question quite often that, uh, well, Jeff, you uh, write crime books, so you must have practiced criminal law. And I say, well, I represented large multinational banks. So you draw your own conclusions from that. <laughs> And, 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 uh, and I'll tell you, Evan, it's kind of interesting. I, I wanted to go to law school. Well, let me back up a little bit. I knew from a very young age, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write uh, the stories I like to read, commercial fiction. I wasn't sure whether it would be a la Tolkien, a la Robert Heinlein, that is fantasy, science fiction, um, or crime novels. I was probably leaning toward crime because I read that read that more than I read um, the uh, fantasy fantasy novels. But, uh, but you know, you, you cannot be a prodigy writer. You know, I, I would suspect that Jackson Pollock was uh, spattering paint on the floor when he was very young. We know Mozart was composing uh, when he was uh, younger than 10, but writers can't do that. They have to live life for a while. And um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll get a couple, I'll get a job, first of all. I didn't know when I was going to start writing fiction, but I went to journalism school at the University of Missouri. 
and I, uh, I was a journalist for a little while, but then I, and I didn't, I, I wasn't uh, really, I wasn't excited. I was doing business journalism. I wasn't excited about that, but I loved the law. And I thought my grandfather was a lawyer. And I thought, uh, well, I'll go to law school at night while I was a, a journalist. And I went to Fordham Law and uh, something, something clicked with the law in me. I just fell absolutely in love with it. And uh, I was on law review. I graduated very high in my class. And I thought my initial plan was to get, the job, get a job with the New York Times or the Washington Post covering law. But I enjoyed law school so much, I thought, well, I'll, I'll practice. And so I did for about eight years and uh, enjoyed it immensely. Uh, but all that while I was trying my hand at fiction, and finally there came the point, I left the practice of law and went to work for a legal editor because I was, as you well know, uh, uh, subjected to backbreaking hours. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in, in any event, uh, by that time, when I left the uh, uh, practice of law to work for a legal publishing company, I... Um, I had probably written six books and the advances were equaling my salary, uh, but I wanted to write full-time. You, you, it's hard to be a, a part-time author. I know many people are, but it was hard for me to be a part-time author because it, it really is a consuming, the way I approach a novel is a very consuming uh, event. So I um, cut my salary in half. I quit the uh, day job and began to write. And I when I, I did that, I remember very clearly the, the first day I woke up, small apartment in Manhattan, and I was staring at the ceiling thinking, that's it. I'm not going to go in and see my friends. I'm not going to uh, go out for drinks afterwards, go out for lunch. It's me and the computer. Can I handle it? And it was like um, a day in heaven for me, and I never looked back. I, uh, I'm, fortunately, I'm a bit introverted. I, can, I still see people, of course. Um, and have, uh, but just the the ability to sit and write for eight or ten hours a day is um, undescribable. Yeah, and and it surprises me very little that you said you're a bit introverted, given that many of your crime novels have very dark underpinnings uh, and dark turns, and some of the the villains or the perpetrators, and some of, and some of them are in New York. With like, I just pulled out the edge, uh, which I loved. And the burglar, the cutting edge. I mean, all these books have kind of fiendish villains that uh, do not speak to me like you would be out gallivanting around the town at night uh, and you know socializing. So let's well, talk about like oh, your writing, um, sure. Jeffrey. Like you said, you know, eight to ten hours a day. You put out, you know, maybe one or two books a year. How how does it? How does a story like germinate in your mind? Are you? doing research? Are you interviewing people? How does it work? And, and what takes the longest period of time? Sure. Um, and I have the practice of law to thank for this. I don't know if you do corporate or litigation, but either one, uh, you do a great deal of preparation. The, 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 the movies we see, the books we read about uh, the surprise witness showing up at the last minute and turning the course of a trial, that doesn't happen. A big uh, a big deal is going down and suddenly something is discovered that um, the uh, partner on one side is a, is a thief or a scoundrel. That doesn't happen. Everything is prepared ahead of time so that when you go to the closing, uh, when you go to the trial, uh, there, there may be minor surprises, but everything is organized ahead of time and it goes like clockwork. Well, that's how I approach a book. I spend eight months um, outlining uh, 
structuring the book and doing the research at the same time. Now, the world of writers is divided into two camps. One is the planners, and I am a planner, and I'll describe that planning and outlining process in just a moment. And then there are the pantsers, as in seat of the, uh, people who just pull out a, a pad of paper and a pen or look at the computer screen, a blank computer screen, and start writing and see where the story goes. Um, and some people can do that. Some very successful authors do that. Uh, but I, my mind doesn't work that way, uh, especially for the type of thriller I write, which is, again, that intricately plotted with uh, multiple subplots and lots of twists and turns and, and surprises. That means clues have to be seated into the book. Uh, at and maybe that's why I like them. So I'm an intellectual property lawyer and I do do a lot of trial work. And so maybe that's why I like your novels so much. They are very intricate and very detailed and not haphazard, if you will. No, and uh, I, I learned that the hard way. In fact, I, uh, I started out being a pantser. I've always written books with twists. That's my trademark, big surprises. Um, and I was writing shorter, uh, they were called paperback originals. And maybe it's a, you know, a 250 uh, page book. They're more detective kind of, kind of books. Uh, and they were good. They were nominated for awards. I was very uh, proud of them. But when I went back and reread them, uh, I, was, I was dissatisfied because I realized I had sort of anticipated where the plot was going. In other words, I'd given away my hand. I had what appeared to be a very clever twist that I telegraphed you know, two chapters before I digressed, I'd write a whole chapter about uh, atmosphere in the city. And I thought, no, 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 that's not what these books should be about. These books should follow Mickey Spillane's uh, dictum, uh, Mickey Spillane being the great Pulp Fiction writer of the 50s and 60s. And he said, people don't read books to get to the middle. Well, think about it. You don't buy a book that's 500 pages long thinking, I can't wait to get to 250 and put it down. Uh, it's, it's our job as authors to, to move the readers from page one uh, to the last page as quickly as we can. And if they falter, it's not their fault, it's our fault. And uh, so I, um, I realized my first uh, probably five or six books did falter. And so what did I do? I outlined them and I looked at where the scenes were faulty. I looked at where I could have trimmed things. I looked where I could have added things and put different clues in. And um, I thought, well, why don't I outline before I write my next book? And so that's when I started outlining. It's probably my sixth, sixth or seventh book. And oddly enough, it was exponentially better. And by better, I don't mean quality-wise from my own uh, egotistical uh, point of view. I mean, it just sold more. People liked it more. <clears throat> and more people liked it. So, um, and, and it, as an aside, uh, when you get to a certain point, in your, uh, your, your career and you start to sell, your publishers look at your prior books, uh, it's called our backlist, and they wanna bring it out again. And my publisher um, said, well, uh, we'll buy, the, the company that did the first books went out of business. So I had the rights back to them. And they said, well, we'll pay you for these, these four or five books. I think it was five of them. And I said, um, okay, but I'm gonna rewrite them uh, completely based on new outlines. And I spent a year and they were smaller books, remember, but I spent yep. a year rewriting them so that um, they followed that, um, what I thought was the proper pattern. So anyway, outline, 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 it, it makes such a difference. And then I do the research at the same time. Nowadays, it's, it's mostly online 
Um, earlier, of course, I would go to the library. I also found that I didn't need to spend time with the cops. I have done that. Uh, I didn't need to spend time with the medical officials, uh, with, with uh, government uh, agencies. You know, it's my job to stay one step ahead of the reader and be credible, but not to digress, not to give them too much information. Uh, every bit of research in a book uh, should either further the plot or inform the character. So we have a, a, a better experience reading the book. And uh, so that's uh, the research I do is now online. I can get you know Google and Wikipedia, but you do have to be a bit of a reporter. And by reporter, I don't mean fake news, which by the way is a theme of the Midnight Lock, the book coming out uh, on November 30. I mean, uh, you know, be a New York Times reporter, Washington Post uh, reporter uh, and get multiple sources, but you can do that online. You don't need to uh, call a source. You can just make sure it's uh, credible because if you don't, you're gonna get an email that goes something like, dear Mr. Deaver, I loved your book. However. <laughs> do you I'm, get I'm, these emails? Well, not very many. I do occasionally, uh, but it's because I've made a mistake in the research. I've, I've been- Oh, interesting. Cavalier about it. And it's things like, um, um, oh, okay. I wrote a book a few years ago um, called The Blue Nowhere. And I, I actually about, love that book. That's another one oh, I found in my collection. Kevin, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a book I'm very proud of. It still sells very well today. And it's about a computer hacker. This is before. That's why was, I love it. It's TMT yeah. time. Like it's, it's, but it's like, it was way ahead of its time. It, it was, even though they were, they, they were hacking via dial up and the modems. Remember that? 24, yeah. 24 baud. That oh, yeah. It's of, like, the yeah, beep, uh, of course. Well done. Well done. And I'll, I'll bet some of our younger listeners have no idea what that sounds like. <laughs> yeah, what is that? Bod? What's 9400 Bod? You should, yeah, you should, you, everybody out there, you should, uh, you know, go to YouTube and hear what a modem sounds like. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I thought it'd be clever, if you may recall, to do not chapter one, two, three, and four, but do it in, in uh, binary. Um, you know, zero, 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 one, zero, 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 one, one, that's two, and so forth. And uh, I, in the American edition, I nailed it. I got it right. And I'm not a, I'm not a geek, but you know, you can figure it out. You can just look it up. I, I got to tell you, I read that book probably the day it came out, the whole thing. And I feel like that came out when I was in college, 2000, 2001. It was 2000. Yes. I think it was 2000. Yeah. yeah. Maybe 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, the binaries, I got it right. But the British publisher uh, reset the book. They either scanned it. No, they didn't scan it. They had to re-keyboard it. And that was kind of before the days of, uh, you know, uploading a, a very uh, uniform Word document or PDF, and then somebody else could use that, uh, that document of yours. And they got one of the chapters mixed up. It was like, instead of 001101, whatever it was, they, they got it wrong. So there were basically like two chapter 37s, but we, most people wouldn't know it. They just saw a string of numbers up there. Oh boy, did I get email. Dear Mr. Deaver, love the book. However, you, yeah. you have two chapter things. And my, my response was, uh, in my mind, was, oh, get a life. It was a typo. Does it really matter? <laughs> but you know what? I wrote letters of apology to everyone who wrote in because wow. I had uh, created a, uh, a speed bump in their, their journey of the book. And I can't do that. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm really obsessed about this. Uh, readers are our gods. And we have to make sure that we don't have anything that interferes with their experience of the, uh, the book, especially now because they have alternatives. 
You know, look yeah. at uh, Netflix. If I go on Netflix tonight, there'll probably be three new movies uh, or maybe TV series. Uh, look at Hulu, uh, yeah. Amazon Prime. Look at all that. So, so it's very easy for us to lose readers to passive entertainment because, frankly, it's easier to channel surf than it is to sit down with a book. It requires more of a commitment. It's a much richer experience. A book stays with you more, as I was saying earlier, because we... We're, we participate with the author. We create the book in our heads at the same time we read it. And, um, and, and you know, people are, we've, there's been attrition. Readers are, uh, my readership, we go to conferences, uh, authors' conferences, and everybody says the same thing. You know, we're losing uh, readership to... Um, Streaming. Well, the, the generations yeah. now don't have the patience to sit through an entire book. It's um, a yeah. I mean, so, and I'm, you know, I'm probably on the, maybe the younger end of people that still read actual paper copies of books. We got onto Jeffrey when I was talking to, to Sussman and he was going on about, you know, the cybersecurity stuff. And I, I was asking a question and I said, to be honest with you, I get most of my spy information from novels. I read a lot of books. And he said, oh, who do you read? What, you know, what authors do you like? And he will tell you this, the first person I said, I said, well, I like Jeffrey Deaver and I, you know, I like, you know, the Daniel Silva books. And he'd like got this look on his face, like, aha. And I said, <laughs> and I was thinking, whoa. So I stopped and I said, what, what's so funny about that? And he goes, I know Jeffrey Deaver. And I was like, I had to stop. We had to go off air and stop recording because I fanboyed for about 20 minutes. And oh my here gosh. we are. And I get to talk to you. So well, you got this Midnight Lock coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's another Lincoln Rhyme novel. For those that don't know, Lincoln Rhyme is, he's almost, he's a, a hero and he's, in, and, but he's cerebral because he's a paraplegic and has been for most of the books. How did you get to a, a lead character like that, that has physical limitations, but incredible mental capacities and still manages to succeed uh, with those around him? How did you get to that? Sure. Um, well, I, I think about the, the, adage that we hear about Hollywood. And when a producer is looking for a new um, a project, a new movie, um, and um, the, you know from, from your own work, um, and I did a little bit of copyright and intellectual property law, the producers call it a product. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. It is a product. I make, I make a product. Well, the adage in Hollywood is this. A producer is uh, thinking about making a new movie, and he or she wants something that has been wildly successful in the past and yet has never been done before. Um, and the irony is kind of funny. You know, we kind of chuckle about uh, Hollywood's, um, uh, the foibles of Hollywood, but there's a lot to that because people want something that they're familiar with. They're going to get a package that they know is going to uh, excite them, like a James Bond novel or a um, uh, you know, Jeffrey Deaver uh, novel, they, they know what they're going to get, but they want something new at the same time. And so I, I had an idea for a, a crime novel uh, that involved somebody who was in forensics, a la Sherlock Holmes. Now, this is pre-CSI. Now you turn on the TV and there's probably a CSI Denver, I would suspect. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not quite, yes. but yes, I get your point. CSI Keokuk, Iowa. I, but uh, anyway, um, uh, so I wanted to do that, and that was kind of a, you know, it would be a, a, a traditional uh, Jeffrey Deaver twisty story, lots of 
twists and turns. But then I, I thought, what's the, what's the added value? What can I do? Well, I can create um, a unique hero. And I thought about, well, how about um, somebody who is very cerebral, Sherlock Holmes, an expert at forensics, but, uh, but can't do the uh, climactic save the day scene at the end. Now think back to, with all respect, uh, you know, Tom Cruise and Bruce Willis, who doesn't love their movies, but you, you, you know, it's the last scene of the film and they are being uh, picked up or beat up by the arch villain. And, you know, it's always happening in a room where there's a lot of glass, you know, beakers and, and glass shelves, and they're crashing into things. And um, it looks like the, the, the villain is going to uh, defeat poor Tom Cruise or poor, poor Bruce Willis. Yeah, well, but, you're describing well, Die Hard, basically, but yes, keep going. Yeah, 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 exactly. And most of the Mission Impossibles. Yes. And, uh, and uh, a number of other ones, too. I mean, Steven Seagal and the whole, whole crowd. Well, um, but... Um, is there any doubt in anybody's mind that the uh, at just the right moment, uh, the hero will suddenly remember it's a recovered memory from his youth that has been gone all this time that his father, an alienated character in his life, taught him how to kickbox. And it all comes back to him. And he kickboxes the, the bad guy and throws him out the window. It's always on a cliff, too. A lot of glass in these movies always end on a cliff. And so the hero wins. Oh, you know, who doesn't like the, you know, the, the visual excitement of that, but you know, it's been there, done that. What if the hero couldn't do that? What if the hero had to outthink the villain? That's the only way he could do it. And uh, I thought, well, he's, okay, he's going to be tied up a prisoner of the villain in duct tape, the whole movie, but he outthinks him. And then I thought, um, no, I'm going to make him paralyzed. I'm going to make him, because I have, a, I have some personal uh, history of uh, paralysis and uh, some somewhat familiar with that. And so I, um, I thought his, his legs won't work, but then I thought, no, you know, I'm going to go all the way and make him paralyzed from the neck down so that he has to outthink the villain. And that would be a challenge to him, uh, of course, because I like throwing my characters into a pressure cooker and turning up the heat as hot as I can. That gets people to turn pages, but it's a challenge for me too. And I think the more we're challenged as authors, we uh, we produce a better a better product, and sure enough, the uh, the book just took off. Uh, the Midnight Lock is the fifteenth Lincoln Rhyme book. I've done one about every other year, and um, he alternates with my new character Coulter Shaw, and um, it's the book is sold out throughout the world. And the movie, of course, the Denzel Washington Angelina Jolie movie we were talking about earlier, uh, that has certainly helped the popularity of the books. But people uh, people love him. They just absolutely love him. He's an improbable hero, but um, he's, you know, I think the popularity is that, you know, really aren't we all our minds before our bodies? Who doesn't have something, some foible about their body, something that trips us up in some way, but we have our minds and our hearts and our souls. And that's what he represents. Yeah. I mean, he's a hero that speaks to more people for those of, of anybody who can't physically solve the crimes or physically beat up the bad guy in, in your uh, cliffhanger glass <laughs> scene. Uh, he outthinks him. I mean, he has uh, Amelia now and he has uh, the butler or his, his helper that helps him. He's got a lot of like, you know, high advanced gadgets um, that help him solve these crimes. But, you know, ultimately he's restrained to his wheelchair, uh, but he still outthinks the villains. And I like how there's like different themes that run from book to book to book. 
and I don't know how many of your readership reads every single one of your books. I imagine a lot of them, but you mentioned like losing readers. What kinds of things are you doing to try and keep readers or like your, your team around you? Are you constantly getting suggestions and advice of you need to do this, you need to do that, and you need to change this or change that? Well, very good question. And it's important. I was actually going to mention this very thing uh, had you uh, not asked me that. Um, we are up against that, um, what I call passive entertainment. We have lost readers and, uh, you know, one could uh, complain about it or one could do something about it. So here's what I'm doing about it. I am writing in what I call, and I've, I've dubbed this, and you, know, you can probably find me on YouTube talking about it in a little bit more depth. I, uh, what I call the streaming style. And it's, uh, its intent is to mimic the, uh, the way a TV show uh, works, TV series. And by that, I mean very simply, uh, my books are shorter now. Uh, the chapters are shorter because readers are rewarded when they finish something, when there's a milestone. There used to be 30 chapters. Now I have 80 chapters in a shorter book. I write uh, more dialogue. Uh, there is, uh, my books are filled with action. Uh, that uh, they, they always have been, uh, but I have cut down on the internal, uh, I guess I'd say explanation where the, the, the hero uh, thinks, well, I, I will do this. And in response to that, I'll just have him do it. Um, I have um, shorter sentences. Uh, the writing's more staccato. And I will uh, read a book uh, very carefully. When I finish the book, I read it, you know, start to finish uh, several times, a number of times. And uh, if there's a word there that I think somebody uh, will stumble on, I'll, I'll find um, um, a synonym for it. I'll find something that's shorter. I, I don't want anybody ever to have to have a speed bump in a book. I don't want anybody to have to have a dictionary nearby. And there's not a lot I can do other than uh, other than that. I I can't. Uh, is it going to be successful? I have no idea. I can only do this. I wish I could have focus groups to see what people want to read. But you know, I'm kind of um, having done this for you know full time writer now for over thirty years. I'm kind of locked into a um, uh, a type of product that I will deliver to an audience that expects it. You know, Procter and Gamble. Uh, doesn't make her household, you know, personal products, toothpaste, mouthwash, and so on. They don't get the idea, you know what, I think we should, uh, you know, we should make orange juice. You know, there's a market for orange juice out there. So we're going to have Procter & Gamble orange juice. And, uh, you know, how, wait, how do we market it? I guess, you know, but somebody else, Procter & Gamble, somebody else does orange juice and they do it very well. Stick to what you do. You may come up with a, with a, a variation on toothpaste, you know, that's good. I come up with variations on my, uh, on my product, but I pretty much stick to the, uh, uh, you know, the crime genre. And uh, if I'm going to do something alternative, I'll I'll do uh, what I did with the October List. That's a book of mine, a thriller that goes backwards. It opens with chapter 36 and goes backwards in time to chapter one. That's and funny I that, that you bring up that book because my mom and I, my mom who is also an avid Jeffrey Deaver reader, uh, got into an argument over that book because it was because it was off brand for you. It was the hardest one for me to start and, and finish. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's um, the uh, Daily uh, Daily Standard in um, in London uh, wrote this review. It was a, a longer review, but this is sort of what they said. Uh, Mr. Deaver's The October List, list sorry. 
Mr. Deaver's The October List is a work of genius and one which he must never ever do again. Um, some people loved it and some people hated it and didn't finish it. But because of that, and because I love readers, they're my gods, I thought it would hit a tone with a certain readership who like things like um, the play Merrily We Roll Along, Merrily We Roll Along, uh, that is um, um, Stephen Sondheim's musical that goes backwards. And then there's- uh, Memento, right? Memento, exactly. Yeah. And Time's Arrow by Martin Amos. Yeah, uh, that it goes backwards. And uh, also the Seinfeld episode, Pinter. I don't know if anybody yeah. remembers that, but the Seinfeld episode. That goes okay, now, you, now you've hit the other, my other favorite secret joy, but thank you. <laughs> uh, Seinfeld, yeah, I've, I, I think I, uh, I, I've su subscribed to platforms solely because I can get all the episodes. Me too, so good. So, uh, uh, well, so, so let me ask you this. Are. How long are you allowed to edit it, tweak it, make changes, get feedback, make changes? When does it sort of shut off and, all right, Jeff, get out of the book, you can't do anything else? Sure. Uh, probably, I think in this case, two months. There was quite a lead time. Uh, but I will, uh, I'm an inveterate uh, rewriter. Hemingway said there are no great writers. There are only great rewriters. And I rewrite 50 times. Um, and I... Uh, uh, edit on the computer because that's got global search and replace. Uh, so I can, uh, you know, move, uh, I can find a, a passage. I have a vague memory of a passage. I can just type in a keyword and find it and move that paragraph to someplace else. I can move chapters around if I want. I can rename characters and, and you know, spell check and grammar uh, check are helpful. They're not the end all be all, but they are helpful. Um, but then apropos of your comment about reading the paper book, you have to print out uh, your manuscript and read it and do 10 edits on the paper version because we experience a book differently on, on paper. It's, I agree, it's a richer experience, but it's also a more uh, cognitively astute experience. Uh, we will uh, see things that we uh, simply missed on the screen. I'll give you an example. It's silly. This, this would not be in a real book, but you know, it's, it's, it's inartful to repeat the same word or a variation of that in the same paragraph. We do need synonyms for those. So let's say uh, one paragraph I wrote, uh, he, uh, he was, uh, you know, reached into his pocket and uh, extracted the clue, which was as soft as an avocado and walking through the, the halls, which were painted avocado green. He thought, uh, well, I think I'll go to the second door. He sat down to lunch and have an, had an avocado salad. That, of course, would never happen. But you get the idea that you, you will find much uh, less uh, obvious words, but that's, that's inartful. You'll miss that on the screen a hundred times. But when you read it on paper, the word avocado will jump out and you'll realize you made that mistake. So you go back to your computer and you, you edit it. Um, then finally, and if anyone out there is uh, a potential author, or maybe you are an author and always open to suggestions as I am, I print the book out, the final draft, what I think is the final draft, and um, have the written version in front of me. And then I have a program, it's called Natural Soft, and I don't, I don't get paid. In fact, I pay for it, so it's not a product placement by mentioning it, but it reads the book back to me word for word and does a very good job. It's not like a reader on an audio book, but it's, 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 it's actually pretty close to some <laughs> readers. And I follow word for word and I will find um, 
I find typos, but I'll also find, you know, some conceptual problems, small ones at that point. But I think, you know, in law practice, you have proofers for your documents. And these are two people who are paid to sit across from each other. One reads, one follows word for word. And uh, from, from the, um, you know, the, uh, the printed document and um, uh, well, they're, they're both printed, but one reads and one follows. It's the same, same thing. And only then is the book ready to go. So yes, rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. I would hang by my heels above the printing press um, if I could make changes at that point, but my publisher won't let me. And I, I think they, I, I think they say, uh, I think I probably could change things after they say I can't, but I don't bother because at that point, you know, at some point you have to let let it go. You are you have basically described my approach to the legal writing process to a T. Everything that you've said. It jives and, and speaks to me individually and collectively as a lawyer, because that's what we do in my job and my team. What we do is we rewrite, 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 edit, mm -hmm. edit, edit, look, read it out loud. I am still old school enough to where before any brief gets filed, I have to print it out and read it on paper first. And I always mm -hmm. find things to change. And then sometimes even after we filed a brief, I'll read it the next day and I'll find things that I wish I would have changed had I read it even more closely. So this is, this is a good lesson for most lawyers that even younger lawyers as you're writing, the, the, there is no good writing. There's just good rewriting. Uh, and, Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, I can see why now when I read your books, why they speak to me and why I like them so much. It's because you pay so much attention to detail and there aren't mistakes that I can spot when I read novels because I do read paper copies of all my favorite authors and I find inconsistencies and I find things where I'm like, yep, how did the publisher miss that? What, how did that get through? Uh, but my well, guess have, is uh, your novels, I, they don't get through. Actually, I, I, this is in, well, I teach courses in writing or I teach a course in writing, uh, shorter and longer versions of basically the same course. But um, I have um, uh, a list of rules that, uh, you know, beginning writers, they can take it or leave it, but these are rules that have worked for me. And I have uh, one that is very important and it's called the give me a break rule. And if at any point in reading a book, the author says, oh, give me a break. I'm, I'm sorry, the, the reader says, oh, give me a break. The author has committed a crime. And it could be something like um, a cell phone um, losing the signal at a critical point. That's a coincidence. And that's a give me a break moment. Somebody gets shot with a, uh, let's call it a 308 Lapua round, which is one of the biggest sniper rounds there is. It's a, 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 a it, it travels at like 3000 uh, feet a second. It's, it's, it's huge. It's meant to cause a lot of damage. He gets, somebody, the hero gets hit in the shoulder with that and continues to fight. No, he's in the hospital for the next eight months. It's a give me a break moment. So you have to read your book as you would read a legal document. Um, with uh, with that in mind, and uh, if you have any give me a break moments, uh, -uh they got to come out. I mean, a lot of what you're saying about how to reach today's readers, you know, staccato sentences, shorter sentences, more chapters, you know, sh you know, smaller words, all of that also applies to legal writing because we have judges on the bench who have a lot to do and not a lot of time, and some of them may have more than one clerk. But if you're losing the reader right away with fluff or you're off base or you're off track, it's the same thing. We lose the reader just like you lose readerships. We lose the judge. We lose the argument. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the, the law is words. End of story. Yep. 
You know, yeah, it's words. I mean, there's no thing out there called that you pick up. There's no tangible thing called the law. Uh, it's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's words. So Jeffrey, now that I have you here and it's been a, a pleasure and a treat for me, I want to ask some questions that I may not be able to find the answer to, uh, to get some sort of, I call it insider information. A lot of people put books out. Obviously there's Amazon now there's anonymous reviews. There's people that put their names on reviews. Do you read reviews? Do you read, you know, New York Times reviews? Do you, and then after you read them, do you make changes when you go forward when you write further future novels? Um, sure, I, you know, all authors read reviews, whether they claim they do or not. And um, I, I, there are two, two categories of reviews. One, the first are written by professional reviewers. And these are people who are paid to um, analyze a book and present their um, opinion for the benefit of potential readers. And that's a, um, that's a job. The second category is the readers themselves who offer opinions about what they've read. My experience has been that the, the first category, the uh, professional reviewers often uh, fail in their, their duty to the readers. They, they write for themselves and they write for their readers not potential readers of the book, their readers to have a clever turn of phrase or to um, take a, um, a, a personal agenda and um, uh, interpose that on what should be an informative review. I mean, the great reviewers, uh, people like uh, John Updike or Anthony Lane or Ben Brantley, these are people who uh, won't review anything unless they have they're familiar with the artists, whether it's a, well, let's talk about authors, it's the author's prior works and then other works in the same field. And they will say, not this is a good work or a bad work, they'll say it just simply doesn't live up to what that standard is out there for this type of story. And that's all very valid. Uh, I mean, one, I, I think of a, um, uh, a review I received um, some, uh, a book a long time ago and the reviewer uh, excoriated the book and excoriated me for writing a, a book about a, um, uh, like perpetuating the woman is victim uh, situation. And of course, there are books that, you know, uh, posit that women are, are victims of male, uh, uh, male oriented crime. Well, she didn't finish it because it was all a setup. The woman was not a victim at all. The woman was behind what was going on and the man was being um, manipulated uh, by her. So it was, the, it was a, 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 an empowering story, a, a woman's uh, story about empowerment, but she didn't read it. And, uh, and she had an agenda there about, uh, uh, about attacking that type of, of book. And that it's a valid position that she would take about you know, women uh, being victims. Um, and being portrayed as victims in art, but that, that's, she shouldn't have used a review of my book to uh, uh, perpetuate that. Now, the other reviews though, so, so in answer to your question, yeah, I listen, I, I read them and I, I, I'm kind of a critic of the, the critic and some have some good things to say. Um, and, but most I, I think, yeah, it's not really that, that helpful. They read it quickly or they, 
uh, they're writing to hear the sound of their, their own voice. The others are very important, uh, readers' reviews. And I do read those and I make adjustments uh, if, if it's a valid point and if it's possible to make an adjustment. Uh, you know, some of the Amazon reviews, they're easy to write. I don't care whether they're anonymous or not, uh, but, uh, you know, because that doesn't um, affect, well, I, actually, I don't know if they are anonymous. I, uh, when I look back, I think it simply gives like a, a username. screen name. Yeah. Yeah, username, exactly. But, uh, you know, I, I got a one a one star review for one of my books. Why? The jacket was torn when it arrived or the, the, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the or it came it was supposed to be overnight and it came like a week later. So nothing I can do about that. But I listen, but I, I read them. And, I, you know, if somebody uh, consistently likes something, I'll uh, I'll do that. Uh, I'll follow that. If they don't, I'll um, I may think about changing if, if there are a number of people who uh, feel that way. Uh, you know, I don't I don't write reviews, really. Unless I really like a novel and I don't necessarily read reviews because I've been reading fiction novels for so long that I kind of know who I like, which authors I like. There are certain authors who I won't name here that have, in my opinion, mailed it in in the last five to 10 years and are putting out many, many books a year, which means I know, A, they're not writing them, B, they're not you know reading them, C, they're not researching mm -hmm. them. Um, sure. But I do sometimes read... Uh, professional reviews if they say something like fans of Jeffrey Deaver will like this novel. Um, sure, and then, sure. you know, maybe I'll start a, a new author. Um, although I can't think of the last new author that I started reading, maybe some of those five thrillers. Um, what, what do you do? So a book comes out, it's coming out in November. Are you already at work on your next novel? What kind of schedule are you on? Do you get pushed by the publishers? How, how, can you take time off? How does that work? No, no interest in taking uh, time off. I mean, I, I take, you know, days here, weekends there. Um, and I, I visit family, um, you know, and then for the holidays, I'll be, uh, you know, taking a few days off. But I know I work all the time, six, seven days a week, um, may not be eight, 10 hours every day, but a good portion of time. My new, uh, the first draft of my next book, that's a Coulter Shaw book. This is the, my new character, uh, the fourth in that series. Uh, that's the first draft of that is done. And I also write uh, some rather lengthy short stories for Amazon publishing. Uh, those are available only online. They, they're not, um, I know you're a paper reader. They, they will be uh, available on paper at some point, but presently they aren't. And so I've written a couple of those. And uh, I, actually, I wrote the, because of the pandemic, I was home more than I was. I didn't do book touring. So I've written two books this year. I don't know when the, the other one, the standalone will be out, but that will be out at some point. So um, yeah, my publisher doesn't push me. It's my, uh, my decision to do a book a year. You know, you've got these readers to keep happy. Oh, did I mention ad nauseum? They're my gods. You did. That's right. I, I bought a Coulter Shaw novel or earlier this year. It was this year. I just realized that you put two books out there. Sear. So do you, do you have like an army of people around you or do you have like lawyers and editors and publishers and agents? How do you handle all that? Well, I have an agent. Um, I have um, uh, an editor that I use, my, that I pay for myself. Um, and then my editor, my publishing company, of course, has, you know, very good uh, editors, but no, I'm a, I'm pretty solo and that's the way I like it. I, um, uh, don't have a team, don't have a research team. Uh, I don't, I, 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 I was going to say I don't trust them, but I don't mean 
anything nefarious. I simply mean if there's a mistake, I want it to be on me and not on somebody else. Um, so I, um, uh, and, and you know, at this point, when my 45th novel, I think, now 45, uh, Midnight Lock is, is, is that uh, far along, I kind of have it down. I know the routine at this point. And um, I, yeah, I don't have a team. Um, I, I have lawyers if I need them. You know, I've been sued a couple of times, completely meritless cases that were dismissed uh, very early. Um, but, uh, you know, that happens. You put yourself out there in, in public and, you know, somebody may decide you stole their idea and, or they may think that you've defamed them or something like that. But, um, but that happens just very, very rarely. 80 short stories and, uh, you know, 45 novels, as I was saying, and that's happened twice. So. All right. I got a couple more questions for you, Jeffrey, because I want to be respectful of your time. You mentioned all these streaming services. Do you watch anything on any of the streaming services? Do you stick to books? Uh, oh, no. I No, I watched them. Uh, Breaking Bad was, I think, the best TV show in the history of uh, television. Um, I have been, uh, well, I, uh, Seinfeld is, a, you know, I was going to say a guilty pleasure, but the fact is, there's nothing guilty about that. Those are, are extremely well-crafted bits of comedy and you know storytelling it's it's it just came together the first season was uh, it, it didn't appeal to me it was sort of standard sitcom but then when uh, elaine got on board and the four characters really uh went at one another uh it really clicked uh, and the uh, of course the in the same uh genetic strain is curb your enthusiasm by larry David. yeah new new but, seasons uh, out right now pretty hysterical yeah i haven't haven't seen that one yet, but I will. And if if one in the anyone in the audience wants cringeworthy television, that's your go-to show. But I, you know, I saw the uh, Queen's Gambit. I like Narcos uh, very much. Um, I saw the uh, Squid Game, uh, Squid Games, yeah. uh, just out of curiosity, and I I basically just binged it to get it over with. I, I found it, you know, in terms of a um, uh, in terms of plotting, I. I I had some problems with it. And in terms of character, I had some problems with it, but it was very compelling. So sure. You know, who doesn't, <clears throat> who doesn't love that? And I, I am on Amazon prime, so I can get some good stuff there. And uh, I want to see, I think there's a new Jack Reacher um, a show, a, a program on, uh, I guess it's Amazon. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. I watched it. I, that was actually my last question for you because I read a lot of, I told you in over email, the couple authors whose books I buy the day they come out of which you're at the top of the list, obviously. Um, you have a crossover you. with John Sa uh, Sanford, who writes the Lucas Davenport right. novels. I love those. If you're not reading a Jeffrey Deaver novel, who are you reading? Um, well, I read mostly research uh, for my books, and I don't have a lot of time uh, to read. And when I do read, it's mostly nonfiction. Uh, you know, I, you don't get into this without loving uh, fiction. I just read, well, I, I, I should say, some of the people I just read, uh, Abigail Dean's Girl A, I just read. That's a, that's a very compelling, uh, very compelling book about an attorney in Manhattan who has to return to uh, London because of, of a death in the family. I read, um, I think it's called Elsewhere by uh, Dean Koontz. Yep, I read that. Uh, very, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, what do they call it? A multiverse yeah. book. And I don't know how on earth he put that together. It jumps back and forth in time and, and location. Uh, that was quite good. But then I, I, I you know, this last year's politically uh, subject we have not uh, touched on, but I've been 
monopolizing the conversation talking about myself basically, but uh, I have just finished, um, I think it's called uh, The Four Threats, uh, something something like that. And it's, uh, you might wanna, if you have Google handy, you might wanna look it up. It's, um, uh, it's a book about how uh, throughout American history, there have been, uh, the authors have identified thor- four threats to, um, uh, to democracy, uh, things like uh, a megalomaniac in power, um, uh, you know, uh, by uh, polarization of the electorate, uh, lack of accessibility to the votes, uh, and uh, economic inequality. I think those are the four. And uh, the authors say that at, at various times in American history, one of those, possibly two, have been present and have been a threat to democracy. Uh, for instance, the Jim Crow era after. Uh, Reconstruction, the failure there of uh, what uh, you know many people had hoped would be a move toward racial equality, um, but only now, uh, in the the present, the past administration and the forces still exist, have all four of those come together, and they see it as a um, a significant threat to our democratic model. So, so I'm reading uh, things like that, and if, if uh, you know. Uh, Woodward writes a book. I'm going to read it. End of story. So that's uh, <laughs> that's kind of my my, late, my my latest reading habits. All right. Well, Jeffrey, we are out of time here. I can't thank you enough for joining me and and uh, blessing our readers with uh, your time and your information. Thank you for writing the books that you write. Keep writing them so I can keep reading them. Uh, appreciate it. It's been a, a, a treat. I can't say it enough. So thank you so much. Well, Evan, let me let me thank you, and I'll, I'll, in a broader sense, as you gathered, and I won't reiterate the readers as, as gods, but that's who you are. I mean, I write for people like you, and it um, it it creates within me this uh, sense that um, I've done something right, and I'm going to keep doing that. If I can bring a little bit of, you know, excitement, joy uh, to a a reader, it's it's all worthwhile. So, hearing your words. I uh, have just made my year. Thank you so much. Everybody go out and get the Midnight Lock added to your holiday list for this year and then go back and get the other Lincoln Rhyme novels because you don't want to miss them.